And so I have some things to introduce, and then we're kind of shifting gears in our study. We just finished the longest sentence of this letter, and uh, it is a prayer itself, a, th- a prayer of, of, uh, of blessing, uh, a Hebrew prayer of blessing. And we're headed into a prayer of thanksgiving. And the title of the message is, A Pastoral Prayer of Thanksgiving. And so we want to... Uh, touch on that and what what does that mean and then uh, and, and uh, we'll be here a few weeks it'll take us a little time there's a lot here you know we don't uh, often think of prayer I think uh, we don't think often enough of prayer in our day and I'm guilty of it myself I remember uh, listening to uh, First Presbyterian Jackson Mississippi and uh, I was listening to one of their services, and Derek Thomas, who's a professor at RTS, was assigned the pastoral prayer. And he prayed, and he prayed, uh, and prayed, and, and prayed, and about 12 minutes into the prayer, I'm thinking, my goodness, you know. And then I listened to about 12 other audios of their services, and no matter who the elder was, the prayers averaged between 8 and 15 minutes. And I began to think about the lack of prayer in, in our church services and in, in my own personal life. And then I began to think about the depth of the prayer that was being offered. What were they praying about? And in these pastoral prayers, as a matter of fact, um, I heard uh, one time I heard Ligon Duncan, who's the pastor there, the one of the, the the teaching pastor there. He said he met a lady at the door one morning, and she said, "What, pastor? That was a great service. What was that thing in the middle? Thing in the middle? You know, he said. She said, you know, the bald headed guy got up. And, I think he was praying. It was a long time. Oh, Doctor Thomas. Yeah, he. That's the pastoral prayer." Yeah, my dad's a pastor. I've, ne- I've been in church all my life. I've never heard anything like that. What was that? That was the pastoral prayer. That's how out of touch we are with prayer. That's how out of touch I am with prayer, I think. We see prayer as a filler. You know, the stage team needs to come down. The pastor needs to come up. What are we going to do? Somebody says, Pray. You know, uh, it's the right thing to do at the welcome. You welcome, and then you got to pray. In our homes, in our homes, we pray before we eat. We pray before we go to sleep. But prayer has become really a lost art. Prayer has become, in my own life, and in your life, I'm sure if you're honest, it has become something that we do out of ritual, Maybe we do it out of uh, a ritual. Maybe we do it out of obligation. We know God is sovereign and He rules over all things. So if He's sovereign, He rules over all things, then we ought to wink a nod at Him every now and then and let Him know we know He's sovereign every now and then. Uh, It's become mystical and magical. You know, just before we do something very important, we bow our head and say a prayer and we think that gets us bonus points on the test, right? You know, you know, we're laughing now, but all of the high school students here know. Final exam, all the college students know. Final exam week comes, and what happens? 
People who have never prayed in their life for the biology exam. Right? I mean, and, 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 and we treat it as this magical formula. That's what prayers become. It's become a byword, become magical in some way. But prayer is none of those things. Prayer is a direct line of communication through the Spirit of God to the throne of God. When you pray as His child, God's Spirit carries that prayer into the very presence of God. The psalmist tells us that prayer, the prayer of God's people, is like a sweet incense which burns continually before His throne. Prayer is the fragrance of heaven, we might say. It's the fragrance of heaven. It's what God loves to hear. It's what God loves to breathe, is our prayers. The prayers of His people. Prayer... Another definition of prayer that is very useful, and we're going to see it this, in, this, uh, in this book. Prayer is also intended as a walkie-talkie on the front line. When Paul says, and he says he prayed without ceasing in our verse, but when Paul says in Philippians, pray without ceasing, that's a Hebrew way of saying, never get out of the spirit of prayer. That doesn't mean walk around with all the time. That means pray and continually be in the spirit of prayer. That's the walkie-talkie mode of prayer. I know there's more sophisticated things now on the battlefield, okay? I understand that. But it's, excuse, that's when I played Army, that's what we have was walkie-talkies. All right? It is the front-line communication to the command center. It's our line of hope. It's all we have on the battlefield. Just talk to our commander. To talk to our God. Become a byword to us. Why has it become a tradition? Why has it lost effectiveness? Why has it lost its importance? I think two things. And they fit on both of these occasions. Number one, we don't need a walkie-talkie because we're not fighting a spiritual war. Oh, it's going on around us, but we're not involved. Secondly... We don't pray because we don't believe prayer does anything. We don't believe the Spirit of God takes prayer for the throne of God and that God hears us when we pray. We don't believe it. If you're honest this morning, there are very few in this room that actually believe God hears you when you pray. Really hears you. Very few. There may be a few. But mostly we are a naturalistic, man-centered people. And our prayers are nothing more than us thinking out loud to us. So that we can get our mind around what we need to do. And formulate our plan. That's what prayer is for most people in the church. It is not a direct line of communication to the throne of God. It is our way of talking and connecting with a plan that will get us out of the bind that we're in. But that is not at all what the Apostle Paul saw prayer as, nor is it how he used it. And so we're going into another prayer here. This prayer is a prayer of 
It is a pastoral prayer. And it's a prayer that I think will help us understand how we should be praying. And I want, and we've read the prayer, so I will not read it again. But I want to say that this is not uncommon for the Apostle Paul. It's not as if Ephesians is an exception. Ephesians is part of the rule. Hold your place in Ephesians and turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. In verses 1 and 2, Paul introduces himself, greets the people at Philippi, and then he begins to pray. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a work, good work in you to completion at the day right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And so we have the prayer of Philippians chapter 1. We have the prayer of Colossians chapter 1. Ephesians is part of a pattern. It's part of a rule in the pastoral letters Paul is praying often. And while you turn to Colossians 1, we have a new mic. We had to have a new mic because the federal law was passed this year, which made us change frequency. So if you hear ringing, if it's in and out, just hang in there. We're trying to get it adjusted. We're doing the best we can do. All right? So we had to, we had to make some changes. Just hang in there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, you see his prayer of thanksgiving, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. The whole prayer, but that is identical to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. This is his prayers of thanksgiving. Colossians chapter 1. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you. Mentioning you in our prayers. And so he continues in, in a pastoral prayer there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Sound familiar? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 4. 2 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 3. All sound eerily similar, don't they? There's a pattern here. And we could go on and on and on with the Apostle Paul. He believed in the power of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer, the necessity of prayer. He prayed without ceasing. And my argument is, we don't pray that way because we don't believe in the power of prayer. We don't believe it is effective. We don't believe it is necessary. We believe we live in a fatalistic, closed society which God will rule over without us. And will accomplish His will in spite of us. That's not the Christian belief. That is the fatalistic belief of Eastern religion. You've bought it. If that's what you believe. God will save people whether I pray for their salvation or not. God will save people even if I don't share the gospel. No. 
No, no, and no. Calvinism is not an excuse to sit on the bench and watch God work. Calvinism is every reason to believe that God will do what He will do in this universe through His people. That's what Calvinism is. So don't claim to be a Calvinist if you're a fatalist. Get the labels right. Because you're giving us a bad name while you sit on the bench and say, God's, God's doing it all. I'm just going to watch Him. No. God works through our prayers. Our prayers are necessary in this world. They accomplish what they are intended to accomplish. If you're not a praying person, your life is of little value, I might say. It's of little eternal value. The Apostle Paul prayed because he saw the effectiveness, the power, and the necessity of prayer. And we also ought to be praying. We've seen the example of his prayers, these prayers of thanksgiving, these pastoral prayers offered up for the people. We have contemporary models of prayer. People we can look at like Derek Thomas, like Ligon Duncan, like R.C. Sproul, like John Piper. One of the things that always caught my attention when I first started listening to John Piper was that he would pray in the first person. He was always praying, and I couldn't tell if he was praying or if he was just talking. He was praying in the first He believes in the power of prayer. We have the examples, modern day examples. Some of you live with examples of prayer. Our congregation has examples of prayer. But are you a praying person? No, don't exempt yourself by saying, I believe in the sovereignty of God, therefore God will do what He will do. That's not an exemption to pray. And so prayer fills the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, one long prayer. Ephesians 1, chapter 15, I mean, verses 15 through 23, one long prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, if you look there, verse 1, and go all the way through to verse 13, prayer. All these are prayers. All of these are prayers. Prayer fills this book. Prayer should fill our lives. Prayer is the action of a believer and one who believes in the sovereignty of God. So, what do we glean from the first two verses of this prayer, this pastoral prayer? First of all, Paul thanks God for the faith of the believers at Ephesus. For this reason, he says. Now, for what reason, Paul? For the reason I've just given you in verses 3 through 14. He's connecting. Okay? When you read... When you read, look for these connectors. For this reason. Should make you say, what reason? Has a reason been stated? Yes. Verses 3 through 14. He's basing his prayer of pastoral thanksgiving on the prayer of blessing which he gave to God already. The reason he's praying, the reason he's thankful is because verses 3 through 14 are true in the life of the people at Ephesus. And it's not only at Ephesus, it's all of Asia Minor which he is thankful for. But for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, he is thanking God faith of the people at Ephesus. Now, the Ephesian believers hold a special place in Paul's heart. He pastored the church at Ephesus. He was at Ephesus and at Corinth and Corinth longer than any other stay in his ministry. He had a connection, but he's been gone. 
He's been gone. Matter of fact, he's been in prison now writing this letter. He's been in prison about four years. And while in prison, he's had visitors, friends, messengers from the church who have come and shared with him. And he's saying, I'm thanking God for your faith that I'm hearing about. I'm thanking God my prayers for your faith. Faith is not a work which we take up boast in. He's going to make that conclusion in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Look over the page. It's just across in the other column in my Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the faith thanking God that they have in Ephesus. It's not your own doing. What is not your own doing? What is not your own doing? What? Faith. Faith doesn't belong to you as a natural characteristic. Faith is the gift of God. We are told in Scripture, in Romans chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 2, and interestingly, in Mark chapter 4, that everyone does not have faith. Faith is a gift from God. God commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe. And yet... All men everywhere cannot repent and believe. They should, but they cannot. That's the answer of the Scripture. So when Paul is in prison, thinking about his church in Ephesus, he is thanking God that they believe. He's not thanking them for believing. Notice, he's thanking God that they believe. And it's not a second blessing of of faith. This is the faith that saves. This is saving faith. And so, as we look, as we think about this faith, this saving faith, we're left to to thank God, not ourselves. It's not our work, lest anyone should boast. What is saving faith? What is saving faith? Saving faith consists of three elements. Not two, not one, but three. Saving faith is assent to the facts of the gospel. You can't have faith unless you know the facts of the gospel. Secondly, it is the emotional connection. It's an emotional connection to those facts. Emotional connection means you are ready to wager, to place your uh, future In those facts. Your only hope in those facts. That's the emotional connection. And it is a willful act. It's not only a mental act or emotional act. It is a mental, it is a, excuse me, it's a willful act. In other words, you not only give assent to, but you give your trust in those facts. You entrust yourself to the facts, the person of the gospel. Jesus Christ. Saving faith involves the whole person. You can't know the facts, pray the prayer, and be saved. It's not that simple. You must trust 
the whole person to Christ. And so he is thanking God for their faith. The faith which God has given them. Secondly, in his prayer, Paul is thanking God for the love the believers at Ephesus have for one another. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I don't know how many times I've talked with people and heard them say, Well, I love Jesus, but you know, church, I just don't like church. Oh, pastor, I'm a believer, but I just don't like Christians. Really? Then you're not a Christian. You cannot love Jesus Christ and hate the people He loves. Love of the saints is proof of salvation. The reason Paul is thanking God that these believers at Ephesus display love to one another is because it is proof that they have genuine faith. So when you hear somebody, you don't need to be judgmental, but when you hear somebody say, I love Jesus but don't love his people, you need to key in and and start to share the gospel with these people. How do we know that it is true? Is there any example? Yes, there is. Hold your place in Ephesians and turn to Acts. Acts chapter 2 and then Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at two places here that experientially show us what love looks like among believers. And then I want to take you to a text in 1 John that says exactly what I just said. Because I know some of, to some of you that was revolutionary and it, you disagree with me and it's okay. I'm going to take you to the Bible so you can disagree with the Bible. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says, After Pentecost... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's the love of the saints. The proof of the fact that Pentecost changed the people is they love one another. They eat together, they live together, they sell their possessions for one another. My family is going through the uh, book of Acts. And, you know, when you have a, you have a uh, eight, six, four-year-old, uh, it, it can be challenging sometimes. You know, you, you're trying to get it on their level and teach them. And all of a sudden, when we read this passage, all of a sudden, we got done. I hadn't made any comments. Noah says, that's like Grace Fellowship. I said, what do you mean, buddy? He said, well, at Grace Fellowship, we love each other. We eat together. We're friends with each other. And if someone has something they need, we always give to take care of them. That... It's of such a positive sign, not just as a father, but as a pastor. I didn't prime him to say it, didn't beg him to say it. He was eating, and as he hears this scripture, he just says, that's our church. We love each other. So, like Paul, I thank God for your faith and the love that you have for all the saints. 
I thank God for it. In verse, and in, in, in also is in uh, this is also shown um, in uh, in Acts <clears throat> chapter four, and they're they're um, in their love and their love for one another, and they're together and they're praying together uh, after the meeting with the council. And their boldness, which they displayed. And they prayed, and, and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak of, the, of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own. But they heard had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. You see, and there was and there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands of houses sold them and bought brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as any had a need. This is the description of love for one another. I thank God for the faith I hear that you have and the love you have for all the saints. Now turn to First John. So that my statement, if you don't love the saints, you are not a Christian, becomes biblical, not just my opinion. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we have become Christians, he's saying. We know that we have eternal life, he's saying. We know that we are no longer under the wrath of God. We know this. How, John? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If someone tells you they love Christ and they say they do not love the brothers, they are lying or they are deceived. They are not true believers. Love, therefore, is in this way. In this text we see it. Love is, first of all, for all of the saints. The difference between the world's love and Christ's love is the world's love picks and chooses who it will love. And Christian love loves all the saints. There are no divisions, we might say, in the family of God. There's no first, second, third class. There are no socio-economic divisors. There is one people of God and there is a love between those people that exists no matter the condition that we find them in. Love stretches across all boundaries when it is Christian love. It's one of the saddest tragedies of the modern church is that we are taught now in seminary to define a target group and go get it. And the target group, when you get down to it, are those people that you are most comfortable with and the people that are most like you. We don't, we want, we don't want heterogeneous society. We want homogeneous, alike. If you go to megachurches all over this nation... What you will generally find 
to be true, is there is one common denominator outside of Christ that draws all of them together. Sometimes it's race. Sometimes it's social. Sometimes it's economic. Something draws these people together. And it is not the love of Christ. That's not the kind of love Paul's talking about. What Paul says is that they love all the saints. No matter their race, no matter their status, no matter their personality. Look, some of you don't like me very much. That's okay. I might not like some of you very much. But we are all to love one another. Some people more naturally and easily spend time with one another. It's just a natural thing that happens. That's not Christian love. That's not a sign of Christian love. Christian love reaches across what is natural to what is unnatural. What even feels unnatural and loves anyway. Paul is thankful because the church at Ephesus has Christian love. They love all the saints. Secondly, Christian love is a sacrificial love. How did Paul know the people at Ephesus loved this way? Because when he was in prison, they gave to take care of him. They sent by their own messengers, by the hands of their own people, offerings to take care of the Apostle Paul. They didn't have a prison system like us. Where you get three square meals a day and a cot. In the Roman Empire, if someone didn't send you food to eat, didn't send money so that the guards would give you something to eat, then you went without. How did Paul know that the churches loved him and that they expressed this kind of love to one another? Because they cared for him. We see it in Philippians most clearly, don't we? He thanks God for them because when he was in need, they took care of him. Right? Love is sacrificial. Love knows no boundary within Christ. There are no divisors. There's nothing to separate us. Third, love, love never fails. Christian love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13 says we have three things. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Love never fails. What does it mean that love never fails? Does it mean that love, it means love never disappoints? That doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect. But it means in the crux of life, it will never let us down. Sure, we may fail. We may sin. We will. But at the base and bottom of the relationship, it will not disappoint. What do I mean? Practically. Love doesn't walk away. Love, sometimes people who love one another in Christ fight, disagree, argue, but they never walk away. Some of us have tested that theory together. And what tends to happen when the disagreements come is strengthening occurs. We become closer through our disagreement. That's a sign of Christian love. The world's love quits and walks away. Christ's love never fails. It never walks away. So it knows no divisiveness. 
It sacrifices at all times and it never walks away. It never fails. So for this reason, the reasons already stated in verses 3 through 14, Paul thanks God for the faith of the church at Ephesus. And the proof of that faith is the love they have for all the saints. And finally, Paul prays constantly, constantly for the believers at Ephesus. I do not cease to give thanks for you. You know, when we think about praying without ceasing, um, we've we've made that somewhat tried in our lives. I think we we talk, you know, I'm not making fun here, okay? But what I what I mean by that is often uh, that I pray when I'm driving and I pray when I'm uh, walking and I pray when I'm working and I pray and there's there's these um, it's almost like it's an obligation to pray and so I, I get in these moods where I'm going to pray all the time I'm never going to stop praying right you've tried that and it doesn't work very well does it I mean honestly you get distracted other things are going on and you don't remember to pray. The problem is not your effort. The problem is your attitude. There was never, what Paul's saying, there's never a moment in which I'm not ready to pray. I'm in the mood and mode and attitude of prayer constantly. Constantly. How can you be in the attitude of prayer constantly? I'm screaming at my kids sometimes. Right? How can I be in the mode of prayer all the time? There is the sense in which Paul knows he is in front of the throne of God every day, all day. No matter what his activity might be at that moment in the day, he knows he is before God. And therefore, everything is turned to God because he does believe God is the Lord, as he calls him in this passage, the Lord and sovereign over all things. So it doesn't mean becoming a monk And sitting in a closet somewhere and praying. It means I'm constantly, always, without ceasing, before the throne of God. In the Spirit, I am turning everything back to Him in prayer. When do you know you're praying? When do you know you're praying? Or you have this attitude of prayer? When you're having conversation with God. As if he's standing next to you. Has that ever happened? You're driving down the road, you're carrying on a conversation, and you realize if anybody sees me, they're going to think I'm crazy. I want to roll down the window sometimes. I just did the old time emotion. I want to roll down the window sometimes and tell the guy in the car next to me, hey, dude, I'm praying. I'm not talking to myself. I'm not crazy. Trust me. But then I think they'll probably think I'm crazy anyway. You know, you're talking like he's sitting there or something. You've been there? That's when I know I'm in this season, I'm in this spirit, I'm in this attitude of prayer. It's not something I'm making happen. It's not something I'm, I'm, I'm on a schedule where it dings on my day timer and I say, Oh, it's time to pray. Everybody stop. Let's pray. No, it just, it just comes out. It's a relationship. And so what Paul is saying, when I'm, I'm in a relationship with God in such a way that I'm praying all the time, and you come to my mind often when I'm praying. How encouraged do you think the church at Ephesus was to hear that the great apostle, when he prayed, thought about them? 
How encouraged do you think they were? I mean, it's not like he didn't have anything else to do. And yet they came to his mind. And what came to his mind? Their faith and their love. When he prayed for their church, he prayed for their faith and their love. I don't know that he never prayed for anything beyond that, but I know he always prayed for that. Their faith and their love. So, how do we apply this in my life and your life? Well, first of all, I think we confess our lack of prayer. Confession, repentance of our lack of prayer, I think is the first step. I know it is. it was for me this week, and I pray it will be for you. That you will admit and confess what God already knows, and that is... You don't value prayer very much. Second application, I would say, is that our prayers become pastoral in nature. We spend more time praying for the trivialities of life than we do for the eternal faith and love of the people of God. I'm not saying you can't ever pray for a hundred on a test. You just might not ought to pray that prayer unless you spend a lot of time studying. I'm not saying you can't pray for a person to get a raise or get a new job or not be sick anymore. I'm not saying you can't pray for those things. But listen, those things are very trivial. And the greater issues of prayer are faith and love. Salvation. And the eternal good of the people of God. That's what our prayer should be devoted to. Almost always. Not always, but almost always. I think complete reverse of the way we usually pray. If you listen to your prayer, do that. Write your next prayer down. Just just when you're by yourself, just in the morning when you're praying, just write it out. Okay? Don't change anything. Just write it. Don't edit it. And then read it. I would, I, most people's prayer journal looks more like a to-do list and a want list and less like a list of adoration and praise and confession of sin and prayer for faith and strengthening of love and the bonds of Christian unity that need to exist. It looks more like, you know, the newspaper, so to speak, of my life, my newspaper. So prayer... First is a confession we need to make to God that we don't pray very much. Secondly, it needs to turn from a to-do list or a want list into an eternal perspective. We pray with an eternal, a long perspective. Finally, I would say that our prayer needs, must become a relationship and not a check on the to-do list. What I see in Paul as I study his life through his letters is it was his attitude. It was his life. He had a habit of prayer and he had a relationship of prayer. He had a habit of prayer. Every good Hebrew man and woman prayed morning, noon, and night. I think Paul kept that ritual his whole life. I think he prayed every day three times a day. 
And I think outside of those three times, he was always in a relationship with the Father. Praying without ceasing. So, now that I've given those applications, the last practical step would be this. If you're not currently praying at all, start praying. If you don't know how long you should pray, worry more about the relationship and less about the time. Set aside for yourself one time a day to pray. Make it in a specific place that you will pray every day. And put around you the things you will need in your prayer. Journal, Bible, pen, songbook. You'll need those things to pray. And then every day pray in that place. And then leave that place Desiring a presence of God relationship continually through the day. It is a discipline, and yet it is a grace. And so my challenge to you leaving is, pray. If you don't pray any, start praying. If you already pray, become more thoughtful. In prayer, about relationship and not to do. Not want, but relationship. It is, it is simple and profound. For this very reason, I pray, thanking God for your faith and the love you have for all the saints. I pray without ceasing for you when I remember you in my prayers. I would say that with Paul. I'm not perfect in it, but I'm consistent. If you want to know, I often am asked, what do you do each week? One of the things I do on a daily basis is pray for the families of this church. Each of you has a day. Some of you I end up praying for more at times and less at times, but all of you are being prayed for because I love you. Because you have the faith which God has given you and love which I see displayed. And I'm praying that continues. Pray, pray, pray.